Tonight, I would like to talk about mana, conceit, and about its positive, wholesome opposites. Mana, the Pali word, can be translated as conceit, pride, haughtiness, arrogance. And it's really the comparing mind. I'm better than, I'm worse than, I'm equal to. The wholesome opposite of mana are qualities like self-appreciation, simplicity, humility, and dignity. Here's a story about humility, but in fact revealing mana, conceit. The old rabbi was lying in bed quite ill. His students and followers were sitting around his bed, whispering to each other. They were praising the rabbi's unexcelled virtues. Since the time of Solomon, no one was wiser than him, said one. And his faith, it's similar to the faith of Abraham, said another. His patience is akin to that of Job, said the third. Only in Moses do we find someone who conversed with God as closely as our rabbi did, said another one. The rabbi seemed restless. When everybody had left the house, his wife inquired, Did you hear how they all praised you? Indeed, said the rabbi. Then why are you so agitated, she asked. My humility, he complained. No one mentioned my humility. (laughs) One could ask, why talk about conceit? What's its relevance for our life or our practice? And the answer is simple. Conceit, mana, is very closely related to our sense of self and the way we identify with the sense of self and then get attached to it. In other words, it's closely related to the way we create suffering for ourselves by creating a sense of separateness and alienation. And therefore, through understanding mana, conceit, we can learn a lot about freeing ourselves from suffering and also about connectedness and about love and compassion. I always found it difficult to give meditation instructions on non-self, on anatta. Impermanence, change, is quite easily visible in meditation if one chooses to look. But one cannot describe anatta, non-self, and then look and then see it. Here's a Chinese saying that shows why it is more difficult to recognize non-self. It says, it is difficult to catch a black cat in a dark room 
particularly when there is no cat. So you see the difficulty. So perhaps it may be useful to look at what is meant by this self, which supposedly isn't there. The Tibetan Buddhist tradition of the Gelukpa has an interesting way of approaching non-self. Here one begins by observing how this seeming self or sense of self arises, appears, manifests in our mind. And then one watches how it happens that one quite spontaneously and automatically identifies with this sense of I, with this sense of self, and then gets attached to it. Once this process has been seen and understood through careful meditation and observation, one begins to see through this apparent but mistaken sense of self. I believe that observing mana conceit is a good way to access the understanding of self and of non-self. In order to understand how the sense of I, sense of self, and then of mana, how they work, one needs to look at the origin of this whole process. The root of the problem is ignorance not understanding, and the ensuing delusion. Delusion is built into our normal moment-to-moment perception and causes us to see things, people's beings, as if they were self-existing, as if independent of everything else, as if independent of their causes, as if independent of their parts, as if independent of conceptualization, as if they were separate, self-contained entities. We perceive all beings, all people, including ourselves, as if they, as if we were independent selves, or as if they or we had an independent self somewhere within us, or outside us, or above us, or whatever. For the Buddhists among you, it's the third of the four reverse perceptions, or vipalasa. Seeing as atta, what is anatta, seeing as self, what is not self. This delusion, this deluded perception gives rise to a strong sense of self in us. Not constantly, but often. Whenever this sense of I is present, is felt, we tend to identify with it. We are I. This actually happens to me. This, is, this really is mine. So I, me, mine, arise, get grasped, and then clung to with detachment. And right there, we're stuck in samsara. Inner suffering arises. I suffer. This process of identification with a seemingly real I and grasping and holding on to this I is called in Pali ditti or mitya ditti. It's a 
mistaken view, mistaken or unrealistic or deluded view or perception of things. It's this process that we need to recognize and to see in action. And it's out of this process, out of this incorrect perception or view of oneself, that mana, that conceit, arrogance, pride, arises. And as mentioned before, it arises through comparing oneself with I versus you, I compared to others. How do I look? What am I worth compared to them, to those? Am I better than? Am I more important than? Am I more interesting or more intelligent than? Am I prettier or more attractive than? Am I stronger than? Or perhaps do I sit still longer than? Or in the morning, do I get up earlier than, or in the evening, do I stay up longer than? Or am I worse than? Am I less important than? Am I less interesting, less intelligent than? Am I less attractive than? Am I weaker than? Or I'm probably much less concentrated than the guy next to me or whoever? Or am I equal to? Am I as important as? Am I equally interesting, equally intelligent as? Am I as attractive as? Am I as strong as? This function and the sense, the feeling that comes with it is mana. You can see that. The sense of self is present, and then comparing takes place. Just comparing by itself isn't the problem. I'm shorter than Rodney. It's true, it's not the problem. This fruit is riper than the other, so I'll take this one. Makes sense, it's useful. So the problem is not just the comparing. There's even a Buddha wisdom called the discerning wisdom of a Buddha, and it's very helpful. It's the wisdom that can discern what creates suffering and bondage and what causes happiness and inner freedom. Mana comes about from an emotional comparison of I better than, I worse than, and this creates a sense of separation. And depending on how the comparison turns out, we get a good feeling, a pleasant feeling, or we get a bad, unpleasant feeling. But eventually, the process is always painful. Whenever there's a bad feeling, I'm more stupid, more unattractive, so for suffering is obvious, we suffer. Whenever there's a good feeling or a just okay feeling because we feel better then. Then things are all right for the moment. But somehow we know that things keep on changing. Someone better than I could appear 
any time. Someone prettier, more attractive than I could enter the scene. The weak one suddenly shows strength that, we, that weren't apparent at first. The other one who looks slightly dumb suddenly turns out to be highly intelligent. My position, I'm better than, is extremely unstable. And with it, the good, the pleasant feeling. It can go the other way any moment. And therefore, I need to be vigilant. I need to be on guard. I need to watch out. I need to put myself in the right light, hide my weaknesses, need to choose groups where I feel better than and definitely not worse than, or I need to exaggerate a little or much, to boast, perhaps unconsciously. The fish I caught gets a few inches longer. The mountain I climbed gets higher, steeper, my success story becomes more colorful. Or, again, I change my strategy. I move into making understatements. You know, I prefer small fish anyway. I've never been a good mountain climber, and I don't care. And I don't really need to look good. Whatever. So in this way, we allow the others to feel better, this gives them a good feeling, and therefore they like us. So we get a good feeling too. But it's complex. Better than, worse than, equal to, it's mana at work. And it's always somehow restless, it's tiresome, and never quite okay. Mana causes suffering. Mana also brings about further kilesas, further afflicting emotions. We easily become envious or jealous towards those who actually are better than us in certain fields, or towards those we're afraid that they could become better than us, or towards those we believe to be better than us. We find ourselves in competition with those we see as being more or less equal to us. We look down upon those who, in fact, are worse than us or who we simply believe to be worse than us. In this way, an atmosphere of tension or even of animosity is created and more suffering results. This attitude also makes us vulnerable. We have to constantly protect ourselves. Furthermore, with mana present, it's impossible to hear what others have to say or to learn from others. Mana, conceit itself, is one of the unwholesome factors or functions of heart and mind. It itself is a kilesa. And in one of the systems, 
crops. It's even seen as one of the basic or root kilesa, which means it's a tormenting emotion that causes suffering, even a very fundamental one. Mana conceit is also one of the ten so-called fetters of existence, samyojana. It's said that only on the fourth stage of enlightenment, when all kilesa, all afflicting emotions are dissolved or uprooted, will all the aspects of mana, even the most subtle ones, have disappeared. So only fully liberated ones, arhantis, or eight-stage bodhisattvas, will be completely free from mana. In other words, it's very tenacious. And this also means, at this point, we don't want to get rid of mana. This is not what we're going for, or judge ourselves for having it. Rather, we want to see it. We want to get to know it. We want to study it. Study and explore the way it works, the way it manifests. I think in order to be able to do this, we need examples. We need to observe mana in action. And at the same time, we also want to get to know its wholesome opposite, self-appreciation, humility, dignity, and see how these affect us. But more on this at the end of the talk. There are plenty of examples of mana. When I started to prepare a workshop on mana, maybe a year ago, I also began to see mana in action in my mind more clearly, sometimes several times per minute. I'd never realized how often it appears. It's quite amazing. It was also interesting in this work workshop. It was really funny. Somehow people would share their experience of mana, and everybody knew so well what they were talking about that somehow it was very connecting, actually, and it was very funny. A Burmese text mentions four kinds of mana. First is conceit through birth or descent or status or nationality, all of that, called jati mana. One is conceited because of being part of a particularly noble or wealthy or famous family. Or one is made to believe that this is the case, made to believe by one's parents. Maybe we have quite an ordinary name, but they may tell us, you know, there are different types of this name and ours is different, whatever. Or one comes from a special town or city, or one comes from a special nation. And we all know the place, the country we come from is always very special, of course, we believe. Nationalism, patriotism are great causes for conceit and for suffering, even for wars. One believes to be part of a specially irrelevant place or family. The same. The emphasis is on particularly or specially this or that. Next is 
conceit through wealth. One is conceited because of one's wealth and possessions, inherited or arrived by chance or earned by oneself, or one finds oneself particularly poor or is proud to be poor, looks down upon those guys, you know, those rich people. When I was five or six years old, my dad bought his first car. It's back in the 40s. I was really proud because it was the first car in our neighborhood. What I didn't know and only found out quite a bit later is we were living in a very poor neighborhood. So, conceit of descent or birth, conceit of wealth. Next is conceit through knowledge. It's called panyamana. One is conceited because of one's education, one's knowledge, or one's skills. One is intelligent, went to a good school, or got this or the other professional training, or one believes to be educated or intelligent. All this is panyamana. Perhaps one is a, a little bit wise. One had some good insights or deep insights in one's meditation. Or one has a good understanding of the Dharma and is therefore a little conceited. It's also panyamana. Or we think of ourselves as being particularly uneducated or unintelligent. That too is panyamana. Spiritual conceit seems to be part of this. Nothing to do with us, of course. But other than here, it's extremely widespread. <laughs> also among Buddhists, also among other Dharma practitioners, widespread among spiritual groups. We may say there are many kinds of Buddhist meditations, many kinds of vipassana, even insight meditation, and of course, they're all good. And yet, and yet, perhaps we've tried them all, and we've come to this one, my practice. Maybe it's just a little bit better than the others, isn't it? People belonging to Mahayana schools of Buddhism have often very disparaging views of those they call Hinayanas, supposed to be very ecotistical. And on the other hand, again, people belonging to the Theravada schools of Buddhism often believe that Tibetan Buddhism is so weird it's not even Buddhism to them. <laughs> I'm at home in both traditions. I've always been at home in both traditions. And they're both incredibly rich and liberating. But it's often been quite difficult to live in both of them. Some years ago in India, a friend of mine was a monk at that time, ordained in one of the Tibetan traditions or schools. He was a very young boy monk who was part of another Tibetan tradition, 
asked him for his lineage affiliation. When my friend told him, the boy said quite spontaneously, Oh, tree without fruit. <laughs> the boy was perhaps seven or eight and had no idea of what was taught in my friend's tradition nor in his own. But he had already been told by his elders what to think about the other tradition. And this is kind of gross, but in very subtle ways, you know, it's really to, to look out for it. Sometimes it is a lot more subtle than that than still there. And of course, we can find these tendencies in many areas. Us, the environmentally conscious. Us, the socially aware. We're simply better than those self-centered, unconscious, ignorant ones. You know, could that be mana in action? Sometimes one can be conceited because one is into recycling one's garbage, while others don't. <laughs> At times it takes a little for mana to show up. <laughs> so, conceit of birth or descent, of wealth, of knowledge. Next is conceit of physical appearance, also very interesting. One looks good, is pretty, handsome, attractive, or one believes to be pretty, handsome, or attractive, and is conceited because of it. Vanity seems to be part of this. We get a compliment for the way we look, and we simply enjoy it, say, thank you. Or does conceit creep in? A friend of mine recently lost two front teeth. And for medical reasons, they can only be replaced after two months. He told me that this was affecting his sense of self-worth in really unexpectedly strong ways. He hadn't thought, you know, it would really make a difference, and yet it did. When we wear clothes that look good on us, clothes we like, which we like ourselves, perhaps new clothes, and we feel good. Is this mana or not? Let's really look at it. Not in order to judge and condemn, but in order to learn, to find out how this works. Our clothes are in the laundry. I really have nothing to wear. It's a very famous sentence in my country. I don't know if it's one here. I have to wear the old stuff that doesn't look good on me. What will they think of me? Is this mana? Mana of birth, mana of wealth, of knowledge, physical appearance. Shyness seems closely re related to mana. Have a look when you get ready to speak in the group or in the hall. It's a very big thing in, in my country, in Switzerland. I don't know if it's a big thing for Americans. When I look, I think it's not, but maybe it still is. I read an American survey where it says that a fear of death comes in the fourth place, while fear of public speaking comes in the first. So. 
have a look when you think, I did say that well. Or when you think, I never can say things as good as. Or I can do it as well as anyone else. It's kind of stage fright. And stage fright, I think, is pure mana. A further area I'd like to mention is that of the so-called winds of the world. We may find that we have a good reputation. We get praise, positive feedback. We're successful. We win. It's easy to begin feeling conceited, just subtly perhaps, or very obviously so. But things are often out of our control, and suddenly we may find that in a certain group, with opponents, or on the job, we have a bad reputation. We get criticized, get negative feedback. We experience failure. We lose. Again, mana can come up and then makes things worse. Not only do we experience loss, but in addition we feel I'm not good enough, I'm worse than, I'm less successful than, and so forth. It's another way of making ourselves suffer. When we did these workshops, one thing that came up, and I find an interesting phenomena, is name-dropping. To be someone because of someone else. You know, the other day when I was on the phone with Richard Gere, he told me, <laughs> here's my own example. Last summer, the Dalai Lama was at the University of Zurich for a day. And uh, I was there, sat in one of the auditoriums with the big video screen. After the event was over, I saw the Dalai Lama surrounded by bodyguards and attendants and very important people moving towards the exit door. There was a big crowd, but I spotted the glass wall right next to the exit door. And I thought, oh, I go and stand there behind it so I can see him pass by. So when he got there and saw me behind the glass star, he came right up to the glass wall and said hello and waved goodbye. <laughs> Made me very happy. <laughs> and I have spent quite a lot of time with him at teachings, at Buddhist teacher conferences, and years ago in personal interviews, but it's a long time ago. But the rush, the excitement in that moment was definitely also mana. You know, such a special person recognizes me in the crowd, comes over to say hello. While in fact we all know the Dalai Lama also does that with people he's never seen before in his entire life. He does it with anyone. It's interesting, isn't it? <clears throat> of course, mana works the other way around too. Hurt, pride traffic situations, someone cuts into my way, someone takes away our right of way, my right of way, idiot. It's mana, and it can come really quick. Or someone takes over my walking space on retreat. You know, I've been walking there for three days now. 
everybody knows that. <laughs> what the hell are they doing there? They're fantastic opportunities to observe mana and see it of birth, of wealth, of knowledge, of physical appearance, shyness, success and failure, name dropping. A last area I want to mention, just a small thing, instead of picking up things that someone dropped, fell down. It's usually not the problem, we pick it up. And yet I found that it depends who it is who dropped something, because it's bending down in front of someone. It's a little like bowing. And sometimes I find myself not doing it, perhaps because of laziness, perhaps because of mana, because it also depends who dropped and who dropped what. If it's a pen, fine. If it's a dirty handkerchief, more hesitant. Bending down, I feel, comes very close down to bowing. Bowing is a great gesture, and it's also a practice. And yet there too, it depends on when, where, in front of what, or in front of whom we bow. And it also depends on who is present, who watching us doing it. Try it. Play with it if you like to. You can bow to what is worthy and noble. You can bow to a symbol of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. You can bow to liberating wisdom and great compassion. It doesn't have to be in any Buddhist form at all, of course. You can bow to your own Buddha nature or to that of others present here. No one here has to bow. But it's an interesting practice, I find, just to try, play with it, see all the impacts it has on us. This leads us to the positive, wholesome aspects related to yet opposite of mana. When mana is not in action, our hearts and minds are not busy with desire or aversion, then the beautiful, positive, wholesome qualities can manifest. Self-appreciation, self-esteem, simplicity, humility and dignity, pride in the sense of a genuine acknowledgement and appreciation of our potential for wholesome inner development, for liberation, enlightenment, pride in a sense of appreciation for our meaningful and positive conduct and actions, and gratefulness. Here's Brother David Steindlerast on humility. Today, humility is not a popular virtue, but only because it is misunderstood. Many think that humility is a pious lie committed by people who claim to be worse than they know themselves to be, so that they can secretly pride themselves in being so humble. In truth, however, to be humble means simply to be earthy, 
The word humble is related to humus, the vegetable mold of topsoil. It is also related to human and humor. If we accept and embrace the earthiness of our human condition, and a bit of humor helps, we shall find ourselves doing so with humble pride. In our best moments, humility is simply pride that is too grateful to look down on anyone. This is David Steindl-Rust. Thomas Akempis wrote, if you wish to know something truly wholesome, to learn something meaningful, practice the great art of liking to be unknown and of being seen as no one. I feel that simplicity and humility go together with dignity and are most beautiful expressions of our humanness. And yet, as soon as we begin to make something special out of it, feel special about it, we're back to mana, just slight. This is a story by Ramdas. One day a rabbi burst into the synagogue. In an outburst of religious fervor, he fell on his knees and started beating his chest, shouting, I'm nothing, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue Impressed by this act of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi, fell on his knees and called out, I'm nothing, I'm nobody. Now the caretaker, who had watched it all from a corner, he couldn't restrain himself anymore. He joined the two, also fell on his knees and called out, I'm nothing, I'm nobody. Whereupon the rabbi nudged the cantor and pointing at the caretaker said, Look, who also thinks he's nobody. <laughs> Self-appreciation, humility, simplicity, dignity, positive pride. The German word for dignity, würde, stems from the root value, worthiness, worth, and is defined as the awe-inspiring value innate in every human being. So dignity is our true nature. In the Tibetan Vajrayana tradition, one will get an empowerment or an initiation into the Buddha form one is practicing. Maybe Tara or Avalokiteshvara or Manchushri. And the original deep meaning of this ritual is to take the place of this Buddha. In fact, to realize that in one's nature, one is this Buddha. And then, in one's practice, one develops what is called taking the pride of being the Buddha, taking the pride of being Tara. And we behave as if we were the Buddha. We behave the way Tara behaves, and we recognize, we perceive all other beings as Buddhas as well. That's what's meant by dignity. I think that's a very wonderful example of what dignity is like. 
Before I end, just a few words on the question. What helps against mana? What can we do? And how can we develop the corresponding wholesome qualities? Think to notice, to see, to just recognize mana over and over again with mindfulness. That's a key. I think maybe with the many examples, you may come across moments when you do see mana, just to see what it is and how it comes up and how it feels. Outside the retreat, we could write it down when we see it. Or I found, you know, through these workshops, talk about it. It's very interesting. It's also good. And laugh about it, because it's actually quite funny. So, mindfully seeing how it is, what it is, how it feels, how it works, what it does to us. Metta helps. It heals mana and at the same time strengthens self-respect and connectedness. And remember, mana is a sense of separation, of separateness, and whatever connects us with everyone else and with life heals this sense of conceit. Bowing can help. Murita, sympathetic joy and appreciation, helps a lot. Particularly appreciation of one's own wholesome qualities and actions, deeds. And it can also be made into a practice. We do a little bit of it every evening here on the retreat. But it's something we could we could expand and do a lot, do every evening of our life and really remember the good things we did. And in the beginning, it's hard to find good things sometimes because we think we didn't do much good. And we start to realize, oh, there are many things. If we don't find big things, we take small things, you know. I said, good morning to that person. Great, appreciate. So it's really to practice Appreciation of one's own wholesome qualities and then those of others. I'd like to close with a statement by Almas on our intrinsic preciousness. It's called, What is the Point? So what is the point of waiting? What exactly are you waiting for? Is somebody going to give you what you always wanted? Will a train come from heaven bringing you goodies? Nothing could ever happen could be as good, as precious as who you are. What stops you from being, from being present, is nothing but your hope for the future. But it is a mirage. You'll never get there. The mirage stops you from seeing the obvious, the preciousness of being. Be quiet for a moment.
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.